Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage It was the Roaring Twenties the golden age of jazz. Prohibition, bathtub gin, Elliot Ness, speakeasies, flappers, and newly found sexual freedom. Fritzy Mann was a young, beautiful club dancer with everything to live for. In 1923, her scantily clad body was found on a San Diego beach up the road from the Blue Sea Cottage. Was it suicide? Or murder staged to look like Fritzy took her own life? Author James Stewart joins us here today on Murder Most Foul to help unravel the mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage. Welcome, James. Thanks, Jim, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's really an honor and uh, my pleasure. So let's, uh, again, for my audience, you and I are both, uh, uh, what would we be called? We're Medicare folks, but <laughs> a lot of our audience aren't, although we have people who are very interested in a lot of things historical. So uh, I knew a little bit just, you know, uh, brushing up against old movies and that about the Jazz Age, which of course included speakeasies and flappers and crime and Elliot Ness and all that great stuff. And so tell us a little bit about the era and of course, where this happened? Well, this was uh, San Diego, California, uh, and Southern California in general, because a lot of the investigation and whatnot took place in LA and uh, other parts of Southern California. And uh, the Jazz Age, which is, you know, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald had dubbed it the Jazz Age, I think just the year before 1922, uh, Tales of the Jazz Age, which was uh, one reason I was familiar with that era, because I had, you know, read uh, Fitzgerald way back when. Um, it's an interesting era. Uh, to me, it's got a lot of parallels to what's going on in the country right now. It was a time of great change after the Great War, as they called World War I at the time. And all the, you know, the millions of people between Europe and the United States and, and elsewhere that were killed during that war and uh, then there was, you were also coming right out of the, uh, the flu epidemic that happened around 1918 as well. So, yeah, uh, so what, what you had happening in the country then was a lot of younger people in particular were disillusioned with the war and with the idea, hey, we may die tomorrow in some other war our uh, parents are going to get us into. So... You know, nothing new that's happened throughout history, but, um, it, you know, and then it kind of touched off a, 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 a lot of changes in the culture. And there was this big dichotomy between 
um, traditionalist who didn't like all this new stuff that was going on, all the liberalism, all of the, the drinking, the partying, you know, the jazz dancing, uh, all of those sorts of things. They did not like that. Also, the uh, very prevalent in this was the freer attitudes towards sex, which was happening. You know, terms like sex appeal were invented then, you know, things like that. And you had the flappers dancing on tables and speakeasies. And, you know, that's a stereotype, but it's also very true. So you had the traditionalists trying to rein that in. And they were passing laws to do it. You know, prohibition, uh, chief among them, right? Uh, and that obviously had a, had a huge impact on the next more than a decade. And then uh, a great resurgence in the KKK was part of it because the KKK at the time uh, had been surging since uh, around 1915 uh, in the new iteration of the KKK, which had kind of been dormant for a while since the Civil War. And they, one of the things they did was they saw themselves as the arbiter of morality in the U.S. And so you count them amongst the traditionalists, obviously, as far as when it comes to, to morals and that sort of thing. They didn't like what was going on in Hollywood, which had a huge influence on popular, popular culture, way bigger influence on the culture than Hollywood does now. It, I didn't realize that. When you start looking at the popularity of some of the stars back then, you know, uh, Mary Pickford, there's nobody to compare to the popularity of Mary Pickford or Charlie Chaplin or somebody like that. So, so anyway, uh, you know, then the economy took off and this, so there was all these things happening and there was this really big culture war. And I kind of concentrate that, on that in the book because it's directly related to Fritzi and how she died. And uh, another big aspect that does also feature in this, and it's certainly what we have today. Again, you could, the parallels are great. You can parallel with, with Fox News and parallel with uh, MSNBC, if you want to go both sides, was journalism, and especially yellow journalism. We've used that term, and now they use it in modern times. Tucker Carlson will call something yellow journalism. But journalism and headlines and even though this was not a simple story, a story of an individual, one person's sad death, made it worldwide, did it not? That's correct. Um, you know, it was really the era, if it bleeds, it leads, if you want to think about it that way. If you look at any newspaper, even in what was then pretty much a backwater city of about 80,000 or something, you know, maybe 120,000 or something like that in the county, it was really not very prominent. And even the, the newspapers then, you look at any, <laughs> any uh, front page and you'll see these blaring, screaming headlines about murder and mayhem mostly. And if it's not murder and mayhem, it's weird stuff, just strange, <laughs> which I, I always got a kick out of reading these old newspapers when I was doing the research. So, so yeah, yellow journalism had been around for, you know, 20, 25 years or something when uh, William Randolph Hearst and uh, Joseph Pulitzer. That's kind of how it got started late, you know, 1890, somewhere around then in, uh, in New York City. And uh, they had a big newspaper war. And uh, so, you know, it got to where the facts didn't matter at all. It was sensationalism over fact. Uh, 
I like to call it fact challenge journalism. You know, we talk about fake facts and all that stuff these days. It, it's 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 been there for over a hundred years. Okay, so nothing new. It just resurges every now and then. And in the early 1920s, it was going strong. And so, uh, yeah, it had a big impact. I mean, they picked up on this case. The LA papers picked up on it uh, right away. The big papers, along with San Diego, and then it. The story started marching east from there and eventually actually jumped the Atlantic in the next week or so. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's an obscure crime. Uh, she wasn't famous. Uh, she was somewhat known around town from her dance uh, venues and whatnot. But so, you know, but it had all the elements you needed to make a great story. And you have to keep that in mind when you're doing research because, um, do you believe what you're reading in there? You know, <laughs> the veracity is definitely in question when you're looking at a newspaper from 1923. So the other thing we'll get into much later, of course, is ha having to take our brains out of 2021 as far as legal, uh, uh, well, legal too, but uh, police investigations and what some of the cases that I've looked at in the 50s and didn't know, well, they didn't have Miranda back then. What? Right. You know, and and just talk about techniques. You know, we talk about DNA, we talk about fingerprints, we talk about uh, so many different things that they, they obviously had, didn't even know existed, much less could they produce. And against all of this, we have a young lady whose uh, official name is Frida Mann, but she went by the name Fritzy. Tell us about Fritzy. Yeah, Fritzy was 20 years old at the time of her death. Uh, she had immigrated to the States with her family in 1910. So she was about seven years old, I guess. And they originally had, uh, had settled in, uh, her mother was Hungarian, her father was Polish, uh, Jewish, and they had settled in uh, Bosnia, Sarajevo, Bosnia. And from there, they immigrated. They followed some of her family who had actually been here for quite a while by that time. But they immigrated to the States, you know, rode the ship over and all that sort of thing. And um, they stayed with her family in Nashville for a few days, or I'm not exactly sure how long, but it was briefly. Then they went on to Denver and settled there for a time, for about 10 years, as a matter of fact. And the reason they went to Denver was it was known then as the World Sanitarium or Sanatorium, uh, either one you, uh, in England they say sanatorium, and here we say sanitarium. But anyway, tuberculosis uh, was the reason they went to Denver. Her father was suffering uh, from tuberculosis, which was the big scourge then. You know, we don't think about that now. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, I remember hearing about some, you know, older relatives that had TB or something or people I knew, but, you know, it was basically wiped out later on. Um, but uh, back then, it was a real problem. So anyway, they settled there. You know, you got the high mountain desert air, dry air, supposed to be good for tuberculosis. Plus, they had two sanitariums there specifically for Jewish uh, consumptives, as they called them at the time. So anyway, uh, they lived there for a while. Fritzi started dancing uh, with a woman named Domina Marini, who was actually somewhat known during her day. She danced with uh, Anna Pavlova, the great famous Russian ballet dancer, and it actually filled in with her. She was quite accomplished. 
but then she settled to, to Denver and just started a school and that sort of thing. And, um, Fritzy started training with her. She took part in some of her mentors' performances in the, the late teens into 1920, 21. And then uh, her father's name was Esor. He died in 1920 uh, from tuberculosis. And then the following year, her mother decided to move to San Diego in 1921. And she had with her her uh, oldest, her son, William, who at the time was about 23. Um, and then um, her oldest daughter named Helen, who was a couple of years younger. And then Fritzy was the baby. And uh, the reason they moved to San Diego was again, tuberculosis. Um, Helen, uh, Fritzy's older sister was suffering from tuberculosis. Probably caught it from her father. It was a very common thing. It was always an issue. But anyway, uh, Amelia Mann, her, uh, her mother, hoped that San Diego might cure her daughter. You know, Denver hadn't worked for her husband, but San Diego with its, you know, desert ocean air, and, you know, it was also well known for that. So that was why they moved in uh, late 1921. And so she um, takes up in there, like I said, she, she takes up dancing um, and one of the venues certainly to be paid for it. She was, she was dancing in clubs uh, at the time. Uh, that's correct. And she actually came uh, to San Diego with a letter of introduction from a well-known dancer as they describe her. I'm sure it was her mentor, uh, Domina Marini. But anyway, she took that letter and she used it to get a job almost right away uh, in January of 1922, just a couple of months after they moved to San Diego. And one of the main uh, major uh, theaters in town called the Colonial. And it was a, it was a, a big deal. They, they had these week-long programs where they would use it uh, to introduce a major motion, pic motion picture coming out. And then they would have a... a you know, some dance, they'd have some singing, some bands and other stuff that went along with the program. And it was like a 1400 seat theater. It was huge, ornate. And that was when she first got to San Diego. And that was real, probably the biggest one she ever had, and maybe even her first solo performance. Then for the rest of 1922, she, she did, she took the work wherever she could get it. I mean, some of them were big venues like uh, in Balboa Park, um, you know, they had a Shriners convention in Mardi Gras. They call it, that was a big deal. Uh, she danced there. She danced at the San Diego Country Club, you know, a smaller venue. She danced uh, at a roadhouse, what they used to call them, uh, rural, actually, in an area called Grossmont, out to the east of San Diego. Very rural at the time. And... Uh, it's called The Barn, um, and she danced there. She, wherever she could get the work, she danced, and she was helping to pay for her sister's treatment, and her sister was in and out of, you know, hospitals here and whatnot, so. Did, and she uh, danced almost up to the time of her death. Uh, did, did she look, she look, I don't remember from, from your book, again, The Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, and the Blue Sea Cottage will come into this in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, did she try to get into pictures at all? Yes. Uh, 
the, you know, the evidence is scant. Uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of rumor that went along with it, with the yellow journalism. Of course, the whenever the uh, as soon as the the papers picked up on a possible Hollywood angle, and there were a number of real and some cases kind of imagined Hollywood angles. Uh, that was a, a big part of the reason why it blew up the story. And uh, so, uh, yeah, she tried to break in uh, just like, you know, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of other young women, right? Thousands, millions. I mean, it was the same then as it is now, uh, except maybe more so then. It was so big. And um, she, uh, one of the suspects in the case, first brought up the Hollywood angle. She claimed, or he claimed that she had been secretly married to a Hollywood actor and that she had recently signed a contract with the famous Players Lasky Company. Famous Players was the number one studio. Um, and uh, that was his claim. And we know that she did try to do that. That was one reason why she went to, to LA uh, a couple of months before she died. And I believe had been there before. And it was to try to break in. And unbeknownst to anybody, including the papers, and the police may have known, but it never came out in the papers. She claimed to have another mentor. And he was well-placed to get her into Hollywood. In fact, she couldn't have done better than him. His name was Theodore Kozlov. And he was a well-known actor. He worked for famous players. And he worked for the pioneering director, Cecil B. DeMille, and was his choreographer as well as an actor. And Kozlov had his own school in LA. And so that was one of the connections that never actually came out. And it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate for the papers that that didn't come out because this was right on the heels of, of several major Hollywood scandals uh, you know, blown up in the newspapers, Fatty Arbuckle, William Desmond Taylor. And had they actually gotten a hold, and those were all famous player scandals, uh, basically, as well. So had that come out, this would have really blown up because they would have had another big scandal with Theodore Kozlov, who was a well-known Russian ballet dancer and then became a movie star and choreographer. So he was, he was well-known and a well-known womanizer. So... Um, but they never got a hold of it. The next morning, um, I guess it was around noon, on the 15th of January, a couple uh, with their young, three young children who were driving down from the LA area, uh, just on a weekend trip, I guess, uh, not a weekend, but a pleasure trip. And uh, they stopped by for a picnic lunch and found her body on the beach. And it actually took them a while. That was a mystery for a while, her identity, because uh, there was kind of a mix up on that. And it wasn't until later, like the next morning, until her brother identified her at the funeral home. So, but there was again of so much. We'll talk about you know the crime scene. Um, so, so much interesting things come from that, and the confusion as to 
what happened. Um, because again, you call your book mystery. I've, uh, I've copied, I've uh, done some other books that are called homicide on, on things where it, you don't know what it is. Um, if it's not, you know, natural causes like tuberculosis, technically it's a homicide. So, but we don't know whether it was suicide, uh, attempted suicide to look like suicide or murder. So we'll talk about the crime scene, but the, the very interesting thing was next to her was a vanity case. Tell us about some of the things inside the vanity case. Yeah, actually the vanity case was found about 500 yards to the south. It looked like it had been pitched over the side of a moving car. It went down this big, steep, rocky embankment to the beach. And that's where it was found the next day. And along with a handbag, which turned out to be, be Fritzy's. But anyway, the, there was a lot of personal items, uh, you know, her makeup and, you know, things like that, combs and toothbrushes and all that sort of thing. And a nightgown that was in the, the handbag and some other stuff. And inside of the vanity case was uh, several cards, one of which was a handwritten card that said, I am Fritzy Mann and gave an address, a local address. Um, so that's kind of a, <laughs> an interesting thing. And there was also a photograph of a woman who resembled uh, Fritzy. And it was either Fritzy or her sister, Helen, probably. Um, but at first, they didn't put two and two together. They, they weren't really sure what that meant. And there were some other names in the card that the police would have to investigate. So, so her stuff was strewn around. I mean, that was the stuff that was, the, you know, it looked like somebody had dumped her body there to the cops and then, you know, fled south toward La Jolla and San Diego and pitched this stuff out of the car. That's what some of them thought anyway at the beginning. I remember there was a, a there were, they, you know, they said it couldn't cause death, but there was a superficial uh, contusion or something. So again, if you want to take the murder route, uh, someone knocked her out, she was still alive, and then she was dumped far enough out. Someone carried her out even could have. You didn't need a cliff. Just carry her out, throw her in the water, hold her down a little bit so she breathes in some water and, mm -hmm. and leave. And then that, she'll wash up or not wash up, but it'll look like a drowning. Right. And, you know, that's, I'm sure, uh, what the killer, <laughs> as we'll find out, uh, had in mind was to make it look like a suicide. And it turns out she had been depressed and she had reasons uh, that she could be, uh, you know, very depressed enough to, to want to do that. One of the reasons yeah. she was depressed came out in the autopsy and right. we can share that now. Yeah. Uh, you know, the coroner came out, they, they took the body off the beach and they delivered it to a funeral home, which was the practice back then. The coroner didn't have you know, it wasn't the medical examiner system. It was a coroner system. The guy was a was an old newspaper man. Had been elected to coroner. You know, you didn't have to be a doctor back then. He had an autopsy surgeon who did the autopsies, but they were performed at funeral homes, uh, and he was supposed to deliver you know bodies that he collected from around the county to each one of the different funeral homes <laughs> equally. I mean, that was a, uh, they actually had a, an agreement for that. 
So anyway, uh, he delivered the body to one of the, the funeral parlors. And for some reason, the, as they called him then, the undertaker, uh, did not get the word that this required an autopsy. And so when the autopsy surgeon got there in the evening, he found the undertaker draining her blood in preparation for an embalming. And obviously that messes up your autopsy right there. <laughs> so it was botched, uh, if you want to look at it that way. But basically th there were two main things that came out of it. One, he decided, uh, Dr. John Shea was his name. He decided that she had drowned. She was found next to the water. Drowning is one of those diagnoses that's very hard even today to diagnose because it can, a lot of other things can look like it. But the body was found in the water. She had this uh, froth coming out of her, her chest and her mouth and uh, nose. And that's very common in drownings. And so it definitely looked like a drowning. And uh, she had that even down into her lungs. So it, you know, it looked like a drowning. And the other thing he discovered was that she was four months pregnant. So that is a scandal immediately. Another reason why this story blew up. Fritzy was single, she was four months pregnant, uh, you know, automatic scandal, big deal then. Uh, it's not like it is now. Uh, and, you know, women didn't have many choices then, so, and that'll all come into it later, but, uh, but that's what they found at the autopsy. Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the police chief, uh, James Patrick was his name, and um, he, uh, he concentrated his search. Uh, they, well, at this point, they're still, they're not sure whether it's suicide or homicide. The medical examiner, or I'm sorry, the coroner and his uh, uh, autopsy surgeon could not decide. It was undetermined as far as they were concerned, because it could be either. Um, but the police chief was convinced that somebody at least knew more <laughs> about her death. Even if she killed herself, somebody else knew about what happened because they took her there. She didn't drive. She didn't have a car. Somebody took her there. So he was very suspicious of the death. And so he started doing an investigation. He had his um, officers out canvassing places up and down the coast there from Del Mar, which is just to the north of Torrey Pines Beach to the south to La Jolla, the resort, which was actually a small village then, mostly dirt roads and whatnot, but it was, it was a growing tourist area. So anyway, he had his, uh, his police uh, um, doing a canvas of all the different places, trying to find this house party she supposedly went to. They never found anything like that, but one of his officers that was actually stationed at the substation in La Jolla. Um, one of the places he stops was called the Blue Sea Cottages. And it was just south of the village uh, on the beach. It's actually uh, right above a famous beach called the Wind and Sea Beach, which later became famous as a surfing hotspot. And uh, Raymond Chandler actually lived you know, there for a time right, up, right above the beach and just a stone's throw from these cottages. 
But anyway, um, it was this collection of rustic colleges and, you know, he found it. He asked the guy, did anybody check in here on Sunday night? Was there a, a young woman uh, possibly with a man, you know? And he said, yeah, there was somebody checked in. It was, uh, he looked at the, the register and it was called the, uh, his uh, signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Johnston, Alvin M. Johnston from Los Angeles. So that's how they signed in. And there was a young man and he later identified Fritzy's body. So that's, they, that's how they first knew that she had been there. Then they found some of her items in the cabin that they had stayed in briefly that night. Um, this, this is the, the manager owner and this is the gentleman, Albert Kern, correct? Right, correct. Keep our, our name straight. So now they've got, you know, a little bit of information to go by. Obviously, he gave the police some kind of description of, uh, of the gentleman after identifying, you know, uh, uh, Fritzy as the woman. So they've got a little bit of something to go on. And then uh, sort of uh, going a little bit forward, um, out of the blue to the police, arrives a gentleman, um, Dr. Jacobs with, uh, is it an attorney or just a friend of his, um, Greenbaum? It, it's a friend of his who was actually a, a, a grocer. He owned grocery stores and, you know, pro a produce merchant, they referred to him as one time. But he was uh, fairly well known around town. He was kind of a prominent guy. Um, but he was a friend of Jacob's. Jacob's, this was actually the day before they discovered the uh, Blue Sea Cottages. Uh, Fritzy had been, this is on Tuesday, Fritzy had been identified that morning. Uh, Jacob's walked into Chief Patrick's office out of the blue. And what had happened was, is he had gone to see his friend, uh, Leo Greenbaum, and was holding the newspaper that had the announcement in there, Fritzy man being, uh, body being discovered and said, I want to see my lawyer. I guess he was just looking for advice. And the guy said, don't see your lawyer, just go down and see Chief Patrick, which was really, turns out bad advice because the chief was immediately suspicious of him. He had wanted to lawyer up before the cops even knew who he was, even knew they had a suspect there. And, uh, and he gave strange answers to very simple questions about who, what he had done that night on Sunday night, where he had been. He supposedly was meeting people at the train station, but he couldn't tell the chief who, who they were, what their names were, supposedly friends. It was things like that. He was obviously nervous and giving squirrely answers. And so the chief was... But, 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 but uh, stop, when he walks in, yeah. what yeah. does he say? I know Fritzy Mann, or I have some information on this case, or, hi, I'm bored, I'm going to sit down and let you ask me questions. Well, <laughs> yeah, what, it was kind of like that. How, oh, really? Okay, so he didn't even he originally, kind of in, he he didn't originally shock, admit that he knew her? No, he did. He admitted, oh, okay. but, but what, the way it happened was, is he and Greenbaum came walking into the chief's office, and I guess Greenbaum must have known him enough to just go and see him, you know, out of the blue, and he walked in and said, this is my friend Jacobs. He's a doctor up there at Camp Kearney at the VA hospital, and, uh, you know, he basically said, Jacobs came to see me a little while ago and he was holding a newspaper and said he wanted to see his lawyer. <laughs> so he didn't do his buddy any favors there. Uh, I, I think it was, he assumed his friend was innocent. So, you know, he said, why, why do all that nonsense? Just go tell the chief what you know. And so Jacob says, I was a friend of the, of the girl, of the woman, and uh, I want to help you clear up this mystery. 
history. And he basically, this came out over a couple of interviews, but he had seen her the Friday evening before uh, her death on Sunday evening. He claims that was the last time he saw her. During that meeting, uh, they had gone for a drive and Fritzy had confided to him that she was pregnant and that she had been secretly married and her family didn't know about it. She was in trouble. Um, the guy had been br brutal to her and then uh, abandoned her and asked Jacobs, who was a doctor and a surgeon, to do an abortion on her. And he refused. This is Jacob's story now. So, uh, so that's, he told the chief all of this eventually. He said, I never saw her after that. You know, um, he spent most of the weekend with this uh, wealthy widow over in Coronado. And they had been down to the racetracks in Tijuana. And, you know, he gave him this whole spiel, but uh, he denied seeing her after that Friday night. And she died on Sunday evening. Now, in the old days, uh, maybe even in this day and age, you've got uh, Mr. Kearns. Was he brought in or didn't he get a good look at the guy who checked in with her at the Blue Sea Cottage? Yeah, he did. The chief brought him in to his office, had uh, Jacob sitting there, brought Kern in to look at him and say, have you ever seen this guy? And he said, no, I've never seen him. And the chief couldn't believe it because at this point he's convinced Jacobs knows something. Not that he's necessarily killed her, but he knows what happened to her. And uh, so, he so was, again, to, to piece it together, if we want, the other gentleman, I'm sorry, I called him Rob, uh, Robertson or Roberts? Alvin Johnson from Johnson. Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Johnson. So where does Rogers Clark fit into this? He was the other main suspect in, uh, the reason he became a suspect right away was because on Tuesday morning when her mother went and saw her daughter's body at the at the funeral parlor and obviously extremely upset, of course, and she screamed out this guy's name. She said, Rogers Clark killed my beautiful baby girl and um, words to that effect. And uh, turns out Rogers Clark had dated Fritzy. Uh, dating was a new thing, by the way, at this time. It didn't really exist before. You know, if you wanted to, uh, you know, if a man wanted to go see a woman, he had to go to her parents' house and see her there under their supervision. So dating was a new thing with the cars and everything. So anyway, he had dated her uh, the previous fall. And as it turns out, right around the time she got pregnant. But she had also had a relationship with Jacobs around the same time. So it could have been either one of them. Uh, the thing that was uh, made the cops suspicious about Clark was is he didn't turn himself in. It was all over the newspapers. And even though he was in L.A., uh, living in L.A. at the time, it was all over the L.A. newspaper. So he must have known the cops were looking for him. And, you know, back then there were no cell phones or Internet or anything. So it was harder to track people down. So the cops are trying to find him and they're asking people, where might this guy be? And here he's an actor and a director maybe, and, you know, they're hearing all these various things, and, and, you know, the newspapers are reporting this, and it's all over the map. His age is, you know, his profession, you know, his description, everything is just all over the map, because they can't quite nail him down, 
And somebody got a hold of, uh, well, have you checked San Pedro, which is near LA on the, on the coast? And there's a guy there named Roger Clark, <laughs> obviously close to Rogers Clark. But this guy owned like a, uh, was part owner of a, a, an electrical store that supplied electrical parts for automobiles or something. And the cops started hounding him and then <laughs> the newspaper reporters, I think actually found him first and they're hounding him. He's going, I don't know anything. I've never met this lady. And somebody apparently said that his card was in her vanity case. And that was a, a recurring theme, people's cards being found in her case. And in the end, it's hard to even tell how many of them were actually in her case. But, but anyway, you know, they turned out that they had the wrong guy. <laughs> and this was like the day before. And then come Thursday, they finally tracked Clark down. Now, did they, did they sit Clark down with Albert Kern? Uh, later, but what happened was, since it was in L.A., the LAPD arrested him, uh, and it looked like he was about to flee. Uh, he had plans to go back to New York, which is where he was from originally, from a wealthy family. Um, his car, which was a Mormon, uh, <laughs> I'd never heard of a Mormon until I did a lot of research on it, but it was, it, it was a car, it was a sports car, one of the fastest cars around. It was known as a sports car. A uh, large, powerful engine. It could do 60 miles an hour sustained, <laughs> or, which was uh, which was a big deal then. That was really fast. And uh, uh, so he, but his car looked suspicious. The the gauges on the the dashboard were smashed, and in the back seat there was some blood, and it looked like somebody had tried to clean it up. So, so they had plenty of reasons to be suspicious about this guy. So uh, Chief Patrick. Uh, got on a train and went up to LA and at LAPT headquarters and interviewed Clark and um, was very suspicious of him uh, for for a number of reasons, especially since he had dated, admittedly dated her uh, around the time she got pregnant. So, and you know, the chief is already thinking this has something to do with her death. <laughs> you know, it was a common reason for both suicide and uh, murder at the time. You now, know, it did, did he have an alibi for that night? He did. And he, had, he was in San Diego, admittedly, that night. He had just come back from Tijuana where he was uh, shooting a, some kind of educational film with the, the small comp film company he was with. And he stayed over, uh, this was Sunday, uh, the night she died. And he stayed over, but he, he went to see a, a young woman he was seeing, another 20-year-old. This guy was a ladies' man, if you want to call it that, or what they may have called a chic back then. Uh, right. And uh, she, he claims, I was there all evening. I went to her house. I picked her up. We went to the Golden Lion restaurant. We were there for several hours. I came back. I was at her house until like 2 in the morning or something. But her father, who didn't like Clark at all, claimed that he wasn't there after like some time. He, you could tell he just didn't like the guy, and so he wasn't going to help him out here. And uh, later on, it turned out that he he had a solid alibi, but uh, you know, it took a while to sort all that out. And um, uh, and then plus the, the guy he worked for in his film company said that he couldn't account for him that night either. They were both staying in the same room at this hotel in San Diego. 
he said, I, I don't know. I was asleep. I don't know if he, you know, <laughs> came or went. So, so he's looking really bad. They eventually uh, do charge Jacobs uh, with the crime. So they come to a decision um, that one looks guilty. I don't know what goes through DA's minds, but they maybe they felt they had a stronger case, of course. And they do charge um, the man who walks into the office of, of <laughs> the police and says, I'd like to talk to you. And then a grand jury met. And the DA, who was a very ambitious kind of guy, and they'd only been in the job for a week. So he was really hot to trot on this case, which was getting national attention. So he was really pushing hard to get, uh, you know, he decided pretty early on that it was Jacobs. And then, you know, a handwriting expert, you know, matched his signature on the uh, Lucy Cottage Register. And, uh, then they discovered some correspondence between Jacobs and Fritzy that had been going on while she was in the LA area. And that was really the thing that, uh, you know, was the biggest evidence that showed, Hey, this guy knows what happened or he knows something more than he's saying. And eventually the grand jury indicted him and he went to trial toward the end. I think it was the 26th of March of that year, 23. And the problem with, that trial, and then there is a mistrial, uh, and we'll talk about that hung jury, and they, DH tries, they go after him again, uh, that they're, and I had to look the word up, because I looked, I thought of it of a different way, corpus delecti. Right. I thought that meant, and they said there was no corpus delecti, and I said, you got a body. I thought, had to, you know, habeas right. corpus is the body, but it really means proof of a crime. Yeah. And if uh, you're, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that that if you can't, you, you're trying to do two things. Well, first of all, you're trying to prove that it was a crime, not suicide. So you got to get that past the jury. Then you've got to tie with no particular evidence, no fingerprints, no rope around someone's neck that was this guy's necktie. You've got to then prove it's an individual. So that's that's a tough hill to climb. Yeah, it really is, especially in this case, because of the evidence or lack of it. And, you know, I'm no legal expert. I did a lot of research on this. Uh, but the way it was continuously described during the trial, corpus delecti, you have to prove first, before anything else, that a crime has been committed. So if you can't prove that someone murdered her, <laughs> you know, she was murdered. It wasn't, you know, a suicide or an accident or whatever, then, you know, you can't, you can't convict them. And, and, you know, the, the manner of death, uh, suicide, murder, accident was in dispute from the very beginning until the end of the case and beyond for that matter. I mean, that's, was the big mystery uh, that was left over. And in the first trial, the, um, the prosecution barely got over that corpus delecti. You know, the judge let it let the trial proceed. Otherwise, he would have just dismissed the case if they couldn't prove it. And it was iffy, you know, because uh, of the botched autopsy and because drowning is hard to, uh, you know, it could be a lot of other things. It could be a drug overdose. It could be a lot of things. Um, and uh, 
So that was, that was the big thing throughout both trials was Corpus Delecti. Had anybody murdered her, number one? And if she was murdered, was it Jacobs? And at the end of it, uh, Jacobs was smiling. <laughs> the way the newspapers describe this stuff is always fun, fun <laughs> back then. And uh, he was smiling as soon as, you know, they hung, he figured he'd be let go. And then immediately, like right after the trial, the, you know, the DA goes outside, talks to reporters. No, we're going to, we're going to retry him. You know, first degree murder again. He didn't, he went all the way from the beginning because in my opinion, it was because of publicity. There were some things going on in the city at the time where, Everybody, the public thought that the cops and the DA were lax on crime. So we, there was a lot of pressure to convict somebody in this very high-profile case. It was easily the biggest trial in San Diego's history up to that time. Uh, at least that's the way they described it. And, you know, my, during my research, I didn't find anything that came close to as big as this trial, uh, at least wow. in memory anyway. But I'll guess, I'm just going to, I think it is in the book, but I will, without reading it, I can guess that the uh, interest in the case after the second trial, which would have been probably everyone knew that was it, they weren't going to do it again, probably didn't stay around too much longer, interest in poor Fritzy. Now the yellow press was very fickle. <laughs> it actually happened several times during this case. You know, when they lost interest, they just didn't do anything. There wasn't anything new. They just didn't report on it. And then out of the blue, when the trials got started, it blew up again. And then, but when the second one ended, it was, uh, you know, that was it. And it basically disappeared from history. There were some cursory mentions, an article a couple of years later, uh, not even in San Diego, but somewhere else, like in New York and elsewhere. But it disappeared from history until around 2011, when a local historian and author named Richard Crawford, who was well known for doing these stories in the paper and, and elsewhere about, you know, San Diego history. It's called San Diego Yesterday, I think he called it. And uh, that's how I found out about the case in the first place. And it kind of revived it. You know, every place I went when I was doing research, people had heard of this case, especially around the historical societies and the libraries and the places I was hanging out. So uh, that's, yeah, it disappeared from history completely until Richard Crawford resurrected it kind of, and then I found it. <laughs> well, so. I, that, see, that's why I like people like you. See, I don't like to do research. <laughs> I don't do research. So I, I can look important by asking a couple of questions and you guys have done the, the, I'm assuming some of this even during COVID was probably footwork as well as computer work. Oh yeah. Well, I started in late 2012. Um, and it was for an MFA program I was starting. I'd gone back to school after retiring from the Navy and got another BA. I got a BA in English, and then I went on to an MFA program at UCR Palm Desert, a low residency kind of program. Great program, by the way. Um, and I needed a thesis project, so that's how I came to find it. I was looking around for a case. I liked historical true crimes, you know, Devil in the White City, Midnight in Peking. You know, I could... Uh, some of your guests on here, like uh, Harold Schechter, uh, has, does those, uh, you know, historical crimes. So always my favorite. So I looked for an old case. Um, but you had to have one that went to trial, because if it didn't go to trial and you couldn't find the transcripts, you just couldn't get enough information to piece a story together. And it also had to be widely covered in the papers, because that gives you another source of information. So, yeah, I spent 
you know, like the first five years was hardcore research. And I was writing at the same time, trying to figure it out and how to do it, you know, piece in the, the, the missing parts. Cause there's, you know, the, the, uh, there's misses, there's missing pieces in the documented history. So you have to piece a story like this together. Well, one of the things you mentioned is handwriting analysis. And I know that it wasn't recognized then and it's not very recognized now. I've done a couple of cases where it just ad nauseum, they brought in the experts saying, no, this is so-and-so. The note was written by so-and-so. And, you know, so obviously they had the people there saying, oh, the way he loops this and loops that, it's got to be Jacobs. And um, I would think the big hole through that, though, uh, is that Kern said it wasn't him. Yeah, but, but was he not real sure? Maybe with yeah, his... <laughs> yeah. From the from the time that he told the chief that no, it's not him. He's not Mister Johnson. The chief couldn't believe it, and so he basically harangued Kern and said, "Does it at least resemble it?" You know, after haranguing it for a while, Kern said, "Yeah, he kind of resembles him. He's about the right size, and you know, so on and so forth." And uh, Clark was like six foot three, which was, you know, really tall, especially then. And, and so it wasn't him because uh, this guy was like five foot nine or something. And, and uh, but he was very wishy-washy. And, you know, he was kind of an unassuming guy, the best I could tell. Very unassuming, but he's assaulted by all these cops who are convinced Jacobs did it. And they're haranguing him, harassing him and, just, you know, his Blue Sea Cottages became very popular. All of the newspaper reporters from San Diego and L.A. are going there, haranguing him about it. And I think at first he kind of liked the attention, but then he was just, I think after a while, he couldn't even tell what he remembered. And uh, he was a very unreliable witness. Well, you know, the second trial, they, they acquitted him, and, uh, and there was more than reasonable a doubt. You know, whether it was murder, they couldn't definitively prove it. It's, it's not definitive to this day, although I think I know what happened. Um, well, what do you, you think happened? <laughs> <laughs> You're waiting till now to tell me what happened? Oh, my. Uh, well, I wasn't, I wasn't going to reveal everything. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, no, I, I, Jacobs was involved. In, in my opinion, there's no question about it. There's very, very little question in my mind, no question that he was the mysterious Mr. Johnson. Uh, the handwriting was one reason, that's not definitive, but there were a, was a whole lot of circumstantial evidence that he, one, he had, he never admitted it, but he got her pregnant, no question about it. He was trying to have an abortion done for her, paying a lot of money, and she threatened him 12 days before she died. She said, if you don't set this up for me, if you don't get me out of this situation, because he refused to marry her, which is what the man was supposed to do then. You know, the moral code, you do this, you have to marry her. And she really didn't have any options. So uh, he wouldn't marry her, but then he, he kind of, you know, took a long time trying to set something up and was very inept at it, it looked like. And then she threatened him and said, I'm going to come back and cause a big scandal. It would have ruined his career. He was public health service doctor, he would have been ruined. He could have been brought up on charges because abortions were illegal completely. Birth control was even illegal. So, uh, you know, very different time. You know, he had a lot of motive. Uh, 
lots of motive. And especially in that day and age, it was more of a motive than it would be now um, by far. And there was plenty of circumstantial evidence. Uh, to me, it's definitive that he met her that night. At the time she left, she was going to the train depot. So was he, same time. Uh, she was up there at the Blue Sea Cottages shortly after that in the right time frame. And then he returned back to his hospital on Camp Kearney, which was an army, an old army post, um, at about the right time after he would have, you know, it, it, there's just massive circumstantial evidence. Uh, and there were some things that the jury never heard about that I found out later on from a number of letters and archives at Johns Hopkins University and medical school and, uh, you know, the Army and the public health service records. I found out some things that they didn't know. So that there was no question he, he had a very strong motive. Exactly how it happened. I mean, I think I know the who, what, where, when, and why. <laughs> but uh, exactly how it happened is definitely still a question. Uh, he may have killed her accidentally with anesthesia is a possibility. Um, or he may have drowned her in the bathtub at the Blue Sea Cottage and then tried to make it look like a, a suicide because she had reason. I mean, she he had a lot of reasons to think that they would assume it was a suicide. Uh, her pregnant status and... Wasn't you know. there wasn't there a blanket somewhere involved from the the cottage, or did I read that somewhere else? Yeah, the cops later found a um, a blanket that the Kearns identified as coming from that cottage uh, that they had stayed in, um, and that apparently he wrapped her body in this when he carried her out to his car, um, and he was very lucky not to have been seen because. Uh, you know, it was in the winter, so there weren't all that many people staying there. Very few. It was kind of out of the way anyway. And then he he was assigned a, co a cottage that was right next to this alley. So he parked his car right next to it. And there was nobody else around to see it, really. So nobody saw him coming and going. And, but, all right. Uh, I say guilty. <laughs> I say guilty. You can go from the simple, right, you can go from the simple to the ridiculous, but again, she's, uh, you know, wrapped in a, in a blanket, I mean, because a blanket gets her, so she's from the cottage, we know she was there, she's identified there, so she gets to this, now how far away from the cottage was the dump site? Let's see if I remember right, it's about nine miles to the north. Okay, so she hitches nine miles wrapped in a teddy, wrapped up in a blanket. <laughs> well, yeah, the person drops her off conveniently at this little parking lot, which she knows that's how I can get to the beach. And she right. walks to the beach and makes peace with God and drops Weighs the blanket out. and yeah. walks into the, okay, well, of course that's how it was. Right. I mean, it, it makes no sense. Um, but of course, the defense, that's what they they tried to make it seem like it was a suicide and they put plenty of reasonable doubt into it. Uh, I'm assuming he didn't testify. He did not. He kept uh, telling the DA he was willing to testify and they kept, I think it was just a ploy from the defense. He had this high profile lawyer that his extended family had helped pay for because he wasn't rich. I mean, he was a doctor, but they didn't make that kind of money back then. And he had this big, high-profile defense team, this lawyer who was one of the best-known lawyers, uh, defense lawyers in Southern California, and he never intended to let Jacobs testify because it was, 
uh, he would have been massacred. The DA would have massacred, massacred him and caught him in all kinds of lies and, you know, changing alibis and, you know, everything else. Walking into the chief's office. But now, <laughs> yeah, explain that one. This has been an amazing hour conversation that I have had with James Stewart and the book that covers this amazing Fritzy Man case with its twists, its turn, and its strange um, persona. It uh, was written by James Stewart, Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage. And your website is jamesstewartauthor.com, correct? Right. Yes. So with that, you can get his, web, his uh, email address. You can email him. Now, do you have any new projects you're working on now that you've got your MFA and all that? Yeah, well, I've been thinking about it. I, I've uh, just started doing some initial research, looking around for some cases. I, I wanted I think I want to do the same kind of thing, find a, an obscure old case that I can find enough information on. And since I spent so many years doing this, um, <laughs> I've got that skill set now, maybe, I guess you could argue. So uh, that's my plan. So again, we'll keep in touch, uh, James, and something else comes up. Um, please let me know. In the meantime, I'll thank you for being today's guest on Murder Most Foul. Thank you very much, Jim. Thanks for having me. folks there you have it a rather jazzy episode of murder most foul if you enjoyed it and i hope you did you'll tell your friends about the podcast uh, they can also visit the website which is www.murdermostfoul all one word no caps no spaces.com there you can click on the email link and uh, leave me a message tell me what you think and maybe give me uh, you know some tips on some other cases you might like me to cover so until next time Stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.